Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, C4. We're so glad that you are here today, whether at Ajax or Bowmanville or Perry, you're somewhere in Ontario or anywhere around the world. Welcome to church and welcome to this brand new series on the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm incredibly excited to preach on this. And let me remind the whole family why. Just before Easter, we ended our spiritual gifts series. And as we were talking at the end of it, I shared a group of prophecies and words that had been given to our whole church. Do you remember them? And they were all about this amazing image of God pouring out living water across the church and all this new life happening in our church and in our region. But God had also said that there was this new call, this new invitation and command and demand for personal holiness. And remember, we made all the connection. The more that we do not grieve the Holy Spirit, the more the gifts will be used. The more we do not grieve the Holy Spirit, the more power and presence of Jesus will be in our gatherings. And so this is a profound moment for our church church. Because now we've understood the spiritual gifts and how we're empowered. Now this new thing is about to take place. We're called to this new level of personal holiness, less greeting with the Holy Spirit, more freedom in our church, more presence of Jesus, and more life internally and externally. So I hope you are ready to come and hear this amazing good news about what the Ten Commandments means to us in this time, in this generation, and even situationally as a church. Now, now, this group of verses in Exodus 20, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there virtually, physically. They've been read and pondered and publicly displayed and memorized probably more than any other piece of scripture in history. And though we honestly in Canada live in a post-Christian, post-modern, quasi-spiritual, secular culture, most still would have a passing idea about the Ten Commandments. And yet, what are they? And, and why did God actually give them? And why should any of us actually care anymore? The modern person may have very specific views on these ancient religious commands. They might say, well, they're God's law, one wrote, for a lawless world. Others among us, skeptics and seekers, might actually say, are they even helpful? I mean, let's be honest about our modern world. Complex, educated, global, pluralistic, multicultural, technologically driven. Are they absolute? Are they transcultural? Or are they actually obsolete? Years ago, when Ted Turner was alive, the founder of CNN, he, he told a convention of newspaper executives that the Ten Commandments were just out of date. He suggested we needed to replace them with ten voluntary initiatives to guide the sensitive person through the new age. And so are they commands? Are they suggestions? Are they guidelines? Are they ancient, religious, biased garbage? Or are they actually God's word in this generation and actually in every generation? Now, there are those, especially in religious circles, that love the Ten Commandments, but they love them for the wrong reasons. And as we will see, it causes a lot of trouble. There are many others who run from the Ten Commandments because, honestly, they like sin. They actually love breaking God's heart and God's law. Don't tell me how to run my life. I'm in charge, and you're never in charge. That's what their everyday life and decisions declare to God, whether they think about it that intentionally or not. And by the way, has anything changed since Eden? Of course not. The devil comes to Adam and Eve 
both made in the image of God. And what does he say? You shouldn't trust God and God's afraid of you. And if you break God's heart and God's law and ignore God's word, you will be blessed. God shouldn't run your life. You should run your life. And actually, if you run your own life, you'll become like God. Now, another question pops up for seekers, we who are new Christians or long-term followers of Jesus. Do you even know the Ten Commandments? If I walked out right now at any site, in any environment, asked, what are they? Would you get one? Would you get two? Would you get three, six, ten? Public surveys done within churches and outside of churches is, well, it's pretty dismal. So let's all start presuming that none of us, not one of us, actually understand or know them at all. So let me give you the summary of the Big Ten in brief. Here's what God said. No other gods, just me. No carved gods of any size or shape or form. No using my name in cursing or silly banter. Observe the Sabbath day. Uh, honor mom and dad. No murder and no adultery and no stealing. No lying ever about yourself or your neighbor. And no wanting or lusting after your neighbor's stuff. And if they're married, their spouse. And lots of you are going, okay, John, seems pretty simple. And we're going to take, what, like a whole 10 weeks, a whole season to unpack literally a paragraph? Yeah, we absolutely are. And I think we're all going to be amazed with what God begins to reveal, begins to enforce, begins to speak into our life, and the amount of freedom he is actually offering us. So with the Ten Commandments sort of in front of us for the first time, let's talk about what they're not, and let's talk about what they are. Because a lot of people get caught up right here and they fall down. So let's start here. What the Ten Commandments are never, what they're not. In other words, what will they never achieve? Well, number one, they're not a set of rules that should be hung everywhere in public. Really? Nope. Uh, they are not, and this is huge, a way to get to know God personally. That is to get relationship with God, to, to get into heaven. In other words, the, the, the Ten Commandments are not like a set of cues or a set of flares that when you begin to obey them, God in heaven goes, oh my goodness. I'm really impressed, John. You didn't murder this week. I, I respect you a little bit more. Actually, now I'm going to watch you more because you're being such a good little boy. No. Now, here's the real scandal, and even a lot of us as Christians are about to be confused or offended. The Ten Commandments are not given to make you a better person or make you a moral person at the end of the day. Now, if the whole world obeyed the Ten Commandments, that would be great. There would be a lot more civility in life. But the Ten Commandments, at their essence is not given to make you just nice and moral. And most people, even good Christian people, believe that's true. Oh, by the way, here's another thing. They're not suggestions, and they're not irrelevant, and they're not some past thing for Christians. Maybe you've heard Christians say this, well, well, I'm a New Testament person, and, and I'm under grace, and, and, and I'm not under law, so I actually can read the Old Testament because it's God's word, but really, anything that applies to my life is Matthew forward. Really? Without understanding the Old Testament, you'll never understand the New. But remember what Jesus said, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, the foundation of our whole movement? He said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish, tear down, break the law. No, no. Or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've actually come to fulfill them. Or if you want to, another way of thinking is, I've actually come to up the ante. So if that's what they're not, then what are they? And how do they help us? Well, scholars and leaders and pastors would basically say in summary that the Ten Commandments is given to all of us as a believing community for not one or two, but three reasons. Now, here's the first one, and it's the most important one. The Ten Commandments actually reflect God 
himself. See, a lot of us miss this. God didn't just wake up one day and go, hmm, I don't think I like murder. And you say, God, why don't you like it? I don't know, I just don't like it. He didn't wake up and go, well, lying and stealing, not into you. But why aren't you? I don't know, I just am not. No, 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 no. The Ten Commandments are not laws that are separated from God. They actually reflect and come from his nature. The Ten Commandments, ready? Here's something for your connect groups. They are divine DNA. When you see the Ten Commandments, you see the very character of God himself. He says to no, no to murder. Why? Because he's a life giving God. He hates stealing because he's a generous gift-giving God. He hates adultery because he's a covenant-keeping God. He says no to idols and he says no to other gods because he is truth and they are false, whether human or demonic attempts to replace him, embodied living truth. I love what J.I. Packer, the famous Anglican scholar and priest once said, God's law expresses his character. It reflects his own behavior. It alerts us to what he will love and hate to see within us. It's a recipe for holiness, consecrated conformity to God, which is his true image in humanity. Now, the second and third purpose are like a double-edged sword. They're like two sides of one coin. If the Ten Commandments reflect who God is, then this is how they work. When you see God in all of his perfection— and all our sin becomes clear when you read the Ten Commandments. You'll suddenly realize you need God. See, you'll never have a need for a Savior if you don't think you're in trouble. And without the Ten Commandments, you will actually never know that you're in trouble. When you read the Ten Commandments, it shows us how lost we are, how much sin we're in. And actually, there is not one person, everyone lean in, there's not one person on earth, 7.5 billion people, there's not one of us that is okay with God, and God's not okay with us. The most religious person on earth, the most secular person on earth, the most spiritual person on earth, we're all lost because we keep breaking his law. Here's how Paul articulated it in Romans 3.19. Now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are what? Under the law. So that every mouth, notice this language, may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. None of us like being accountable and our culture really hates the idea of accountability and the Bible teaches that every human being who has ever lived is accountable to God, their creator. And then these verses, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous, made right in his sight by observing the law. Rather through the law, we become what? Conscious of our sin. So the law reflects who God is. And then when you read the law, you realize how lost you are. And then you realize that you are and I are, we are what? Sinners. Now third, once we know we can't be saved by obeying the law, because we'd have to obey them perfectly 24-7. Anyone done that before? Exactly, no one. When you begin to see your sin, then there's two results. Either you run from God, or you invent your own God that suits you, or you run to God and see if he might be merciful. And the amazing thing of the Christian message is God is love, and he is mercy. 
And so if we accept God's mercy, then the law no longer condemns us, but it takes on a new reality for us. So we see who God is, we see our need, we become conscious of sin, and once you experience the mercy of God through Jesus, then the Ten Commandments become life-giving laws, as G.I. Packer calls them. So living out of the Ten Commandments after meeting Jesus as Savior and Lord, grace alone, faith alone, through Jesus alone, once you've received the Holy Spirit at conversion, who will give you the ability to follow them, then they become places of real freedom. Again, J.I. Packer wrote this, these 10 directives, these 10 life-giving laws, which embody the creator's intention for human life are here presented, everyone lean in, as a means of maintaining a redeemed relationship already given to you by grace. In other words, the 10 commandments for a Christian are beautiful because they show you how to live after you've experienced the mercy of God, not before. So with all that in mind, Moses unpacks this, and so does Paul. Hear these words, maybe for the first time or all over again, but hear God's word today. Exodus 21. And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord, notice the phrase, your God, who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. Now, let's start and unpack this. And God spoke all these words. God spoke these words to who? The world? No, his people. There's no mediator between God and his people. No, no, no priest or angel. God. Heaven's will is expressed on earth. This is in some sense almost a face-to-face encounter. And notice he starts the process. God approaches us. When we can't get to him, he comes and finds us and reveals himself to us. His mercy is even seen in these verses. He comes and approaches to give us life. These words are revelation from God himself. And the emphasis here is on the source first and foremost, then purpose, then content. But here's what lots of people write. But most Most of us get hung up with the content first, which takes us down a path to either them becoming irrelevant or making us profoundly religious and missing the relationship. Don't forget, by the way, we've talked about this in our last series. Every time God speaks, every time God reveals himself to someone, what happens to them? They're overwhelmed, and actually, lots of times, literally, they fall down. It's the most overwhelming experience for any human, and that's the point. We must start with God as holy, as other, as creator, not some cuddly creator that moves when we think he should. He's not our genie, and he's not just our best friend. No, no, no. He's God. And then he says these words. He says, I am the Lord. Now, you need to catch this because the Hebrew matters. There are many names for God in the Old Testament, and the one that's chosen here is Yahweh. I am who I am. Now, that name is so key because it's the name that God always uses when he talks about his relationship with his people. It's his covenantal name. It's his marriage name. As one wrote, Yahweh is God's covenant name, and Scripture compares his covenant to a person committing in marriage. Notice this, a free, deliberate undertaking to love, to protect and provide for the one whom he now calls my wife and to whom he is presenting himself as husband. Now to many Jews, if you talk to them today or in ancient times, they would actually tell you that this is actually the first command. Not do not have any other gods before me. The first command is have faith. 
believe in God, not just intellectually believe in his experience or existence, but have a living dynamic relationship with him, a vibrant belief in the living God who's shown himself by loving actions like election and redemption and hope and, and freedom and restoration of lost relationship. In other words, this is all about self-disclosure. The creator of the universe has decided to reveal himself in a marriage-like way to the highest form of his creation, human beings who are made what? In the image of God. I am God, he says. Oh, there's none, no one who can stop me. There's no one like me in the heavens. There's no person, no nation, no amount of military power, intellect, or work can undo my plans. I'm the Lord, and, and you're not. And yet after God is encountered in his holiness, in his glory, in his awe, in his sovereignty, in his transcendence, he moves to imminence. And he says, by the way, I'm Yahweh, so I'm your husband. I, I'm in relationship with you. And then he uses this great phrase. He says, I'm your God. Did you catch it? We already have relationship, he says. This is an initiating family. We already are family. You're my friend, and we're in a loving relationship. The whole process starts with relationship. Not it, but I and you. One rightly said, God is not some force, some it. He has revealed himself to us. This is a mutual relationship, mutual love, service, mutual listening, responding, giving, taking, sharing. I know you, and you know me. You don't just know about me. In other words, here's what we got to catch. God is already in a covenant, a marriage with those he's already revealed himself to, those he's chosen to call to himself. Now, some of you are going, okay, how do I know if I'm his child? I mean, how do I really know if I'm, I'm part of the community he's speaking to? What's well, the act of salvation itself? I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of what? Slavery. One of the most important words in the whole Bible is implied right here. It's the word redemption. It's a financial term meaning to be bought back. And it was a word used to buy someone literally out of a slave market. And that's exactly what God did. He saves, he redeems the Israelites from a situation they could do what? Nothing about. Implied here also is election, calling, predestination, and preserving. The sovereign work of God, where he out of love calls the Israelites out of every other nation, and he calls them out of slavery, and it's a work that must come from heaven because they don't have the power to do anything. They don't have any ability to get out of Egypt. This is unmerited love. And God says, on the basis of my love, you can now come to me. And by the way, this then becomes the basis to love God and love neighbor and say yes to the Ten Commandments. The act of love of saving us, and it has nothing to do with us, is the deep well and kindles the deep love to love him back, which is how the Ten Commandments function. Remember the story, Israelites, Israel, right, in captivity for 400, I think 20 or 30 years. God calls Moses to lead them out. Pharaoh won't obey God. God sends 10 plagues to judge the Egyptians and Pharaoh. The river turns to blood, then frogs, gnats, flies. He kills off animals. Pharaoh will not let people, God's people go. Then he says, well, if you don't keep repenting, if you don't give my people, then sores, hailstones, locusts, darkness, no repentance. And Moses has sent one, back time to, one last time to Pharaoh. And what does he say? If you do not repent, all your firstborn will be struck down. What the Jews now call the Passover happens. The 10th plague is the worst. 
However, God's people were instructed to mark the doorposts of their homes with the blood of a perfect spring lamb. And upon seeing the blood over the doorposts, the avenger would go over, would pass over their house and not bring death. Exodus 12, 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all, notice this, the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. See, lots of us who grew up in church miss this part. It's not just that he brings plagues on Egypt. He actually brings judgment on what? The gods of Egypt. If you work this out, almost every single plague that God sends is actually against one of the things that the Egyptians used to worship. In other words, this is a declaration that God the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Israelites, is stronger than the gods of Egypt. This is spiritual conflict. Who's the stronger God? And, and this isn't just about governments. This is about who actually has the right to rule. But as mentioned already, God covers his people in this moment of judgment. Exodus 12, 23. And when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he'll see the blood on top and on the sides of the door frames. He'll pass over the doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses or strike you down. Now that is why God did say and could say, I am your God. Now catch this. This is it. The Ten Commandments, this is a revolutionary moment for lots of us. The Ten Commandments are given to those who already are in a personal relationship with the only true living God. They don't establish the relationship. They don't open the door to the relationship. They're not the key that opens the door. They're not the, max, you know, the secret password to get through the, no, no, no. They're given to those who already know him. And this whole historical story that actually happened with Moses and Egypt, and all, this was a foreshadow for the most important work of God. The greater exodus, Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection on the cross, where his work would buy us back from sin, death, disease, and the demonic. That's Pharaoh for us. And that's why Paul, thinking about the exodus story, wrote these incredible words in Colossians 1.13. For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. Amen, anyone for that? He rescued us. Now I want you to catch this. In Greek means he's delivered us. In other words, he's redeemed us. It's the same thing. He bought us out of the slave market. And he rescued us from what? Paul says the dominion of darkness. The phrase you use to describe the realm of the kingdom of darkness, the legion of demonic, the work of Lucifer. And he brought us into the, into the kingdom, the, the son he loves. In other words, Jesus' birth and Jesus' baptism and Jesus' ministry and Jesus' teaching and Jesus' miracles and Jesus' perfect life and Jesus' perfect death and Jesus' amazing resurrection and his glorious ascension, that is why and how we are saved. We're rescued from darkness to light. We're placed in relationship with God only through Jesus' work. He is the blood actually over our doorposts. So we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's that word again. I love how Paul put it later in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, and are justified, made right legally, by his grace through redemption, buying back, that came through who? Christ Jesus. Oh, and God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice 
because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed before unpunished. So there it is all again. The Exodus story repeated. We are in bondage to sin and Satan and death and disease. And like Satan's almost like Pharaoh, right? And we get redeemed by Jesus. And his blood, the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, is placed over our doorposts and, the, and we become what? Saved. So let me bring this home. Here's what one person wrote. God is the redeemer and he is the rewarder. And you could add the reward. The God who redeemed the Jews from Egypt and Egyptian slavery has redeemed Christians from the bondage to sin and Satan at the cost of Calvary. Now it is by keeping his law that liberty, liberty is secured and is to be preserved. Sorry, let me read that again. Now it is by keeping his law that the liberty already secured is to be preserved. That was true for Israel on a typical level. God told them obedience would mean you'd live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. He, he said steadfast love would be shown to thousands if they keep, uh, keep commands. But, but for Israel then, and for Christians now, the deeper truth is this. Keeping God's law, the Ten Commandments, brings that deeper freedom, that inner commitment and contentment at which the Tenth Commandment, by the way, uh, do not covenant, is the aim. That's why Jesus' half-brother James in James 1.25 says it's the law of liberty. Law-keeping is that life for which we are fitted by nature, unfitted by sin, and refitted by grace. Let me just say this. This is G.I. Packer again talking. He says, law-keeping is that life for which we were fitted by nature. We're designed this way. It got unfitted by sin and got refitted by grace. The life God loves to see and reward for that life is liberty and freedom. That's its proper name. So look, if you're a seeker here today or a skeptic here today or you're checking out the Christian faith, let me say this to you. If you want to know who God is, one of the first things you should do is read the Ten Commandments and see him in his profundity and his holiness. And by the way, isn't it amazing who God is? God never murders, God never lies, God never steals, he doesn't covet at all. Like, he's exactly what you want in your life. But you need to see his holiness. And then you need to see how far you are from him. And you need to realize he's the only one who can save you from death and sin and your history and even the demonic. But also in this moment, you see his love. God's not distant. God's not far away. He's moved by compassion to help each one of us. He wants to give you life and freedom. And he says you need to come as you are to gain freedom, but then you need to move beyond. Here's how one theologian articulated it. I think it might be helpful for you who are seeking. If I try to take the Ten Commandments seriously and I live, with, live by them, they're going to swamp me every single time. Every day, day I'm going to fail somewhere. So what do I do? The answer is now that you know your own weakness and your own sinfulness, turn to God and turn to his son, Jesus Christ, for pardon and power. Christ will bring into you a new kind of life in which your heart's deepest desire will be to go God's way and obedience will no longer become burdensome for you anymore. So you'll never know if you need a savior. You'll never understand the relevance and the power and the beauty and the gift of Jesus if you do not know how lost you are, how far you are from God, how big the chasm is between you and your creator who is wholly other and wholly without sin. Now I'm gonna give you an opportunity at the end of this message to encounter God in a personal way. 
And if you're a skeptic or a seeker or, or, or you're part of another faith or you have the title Christian over your life, but you're not a Christian, I'm going to let you move from darkness to light in a minute. And I want you to pray and think about that as I keep speaking. Now, for others of us, many of us here, we're Christians. And we haven't worked this out. So let me just say a, a few things that really, really matter. When we go through this series together, here's what we need to be thinking about. One, we need to celebrate, but at the same time stand for the truth of the gospel. We as Christians stand fundamentally against the idea of religion that says we are saved by what we do and how we obey. In the early church, some argued you need to be circumcised. You need to become more Jewish and obey this group of rules. And then plus Jesus, then you become God's people. It was wanting people to earn God's salvation. This always takes away from the scandal of the gospel, which is grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone, not by works. Works, if you want to write this down for Connect Group, it might help. Works come after the relationship. They do not establish the relationship. They're, they're not about duty. They're about love. Today, people say, well, if you're not baptized, you, you're not saved, or you need to be rebaptized, or if you don't speak in tongues, or you need to have someone lay hands this way. Listen, if it's any other thing than Jesus, if it's Jesus plus, you're already taking away the scandal of the gospel. See, here's the insidious thing about religion. We think that God is pleased, and we're being profoundly faithful by teaching that God likes us by what we do. And by actually doing that, we are actually not pleasing him and we're attacking the very thing he's trying to give us. One person said this years ago, most religions tell you of something you must do. Christianity tells you of something that God has done. He did it through Jesus Christ on the cross. When his hearers wanted to know what they should do in light of Peter or Paul's preaching, they told them to do nothing at all, but rather receive what God had done for them through Jesus. He sketched a picture of God approaching them with gifts in hand. They could never earn them. So we need to remember as Christians as we're post-Christian and, you know, post-truth and it's your truth and my, and we, we are desperate for truth, we still cannot give away the house by saying, well, if we just all obeyed the Ten Commandments, everything would be better. No. The way you connect with God is exclusively through Jesus alone. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And Paul said in Ephesians 2, it's, not by, it's by grace through faith. It's never from yourself. It's never through works. It's a gift of God. We must defend the gospel at its essence. But that cannot become an excuse to sin. I mean, Paul says this, I think in Romans 6, shall I go on sinning so grace will increase? No. So we have to defend the scandal of the gospel that says you do nothing to get saved except say yes. But once you get saved and you know God's unmerited love and favor, then we have to embrace our new God-given freedom, personal holiness. There are many of us that say, yeah, yeah, John, I'm with you, and I believe everything you've basically said, and when I talk to others about Jesus, I talk to them about this burden-lifting truth, but your everyday life does not show that you actually believe that God has already redeemed you. You keep living your life as a Christian like you're outside of the family. Your view of God and his work and his law is all messed up. Years ago, I think in the mid-60s, there was a famous Christian guy named J.P. Phillips, and he wrote a book that a lot of people read called Your God is Too Small. And there's a little section where I think he was writing to a lot of us when he said, the kind of God 
that's not right is always saying to you, that's not quite good enough. You've got to do better. You've got to do better than that if you want to please me and I'm going to really love you. And you see, that God, by the way, that's in your head is not merely perfect or holy. That God is a perfectionist who can never do anything and can never accept anything except perfect performance from you. Now, if this is the God that you worship, even sort of in your head, you probably, he writes this, have a real difficulty of loving him. Whoa. This is what God says to, to us as Christians. You're already free. You're already redeemed. You're no longer in Egypt. When my son on the cross said it is finished, he meant it. My, my work is done. So all of us as Christians can come to him freely. So this is what God says to us. The commands I ask you to obey and follow, like the Ten Commandments, are to strengthen the bond, not establish it. Trust me. Trust my work. Then obey me, and out of the obedience will become freedom and joy. And this actually, by the way, leads me to the most important part, probably for this whole series. For a Christian... What is the real gift of the Ten Commandments? And it's this. It's worship. It's the heart of worship. When God's undeserved work is understood again and afresh, when we realize how lost we are, how sinful we were, how broken we were, how separated, how really bad it was, and then we see what Jesus really did for us and how it was free, and then we approach the Ten Commandments later, then, then everything changes because we're so thankful and we're so moved by God's love that all we want to do is love God back better. When we become speechless in the presence of God, mercy, love, grace, unmerited kindness, and we're even given assurance, which by the way, the world has nothing of, then and only then does the Ten Commandments come to life for us. Do we see the connection to becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus? Because here's the thing, the heart of the Ten Commandments for the Christian is, I am already saved, I'm already out of Egypt, Yahweh, God is already in a relationship, a marriage with me, he is already my God, since he's done all these incredible things, now I will obey, not to get his attention, but because I love him more than myself. Here's how Paul articulated the whole idea later in Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, Notice the phrase, in view of God's mercy, wow, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of what? Worship. So within view of God's mercy, this is how we live. The Ten Commandments are so critical. We're going to go through this over the next little while. The Ten Commandments show us who God is and who he's not. The Ten Commandments, when you read them, begin to show us that we are sinners and we fall short all the time. We break God's heart and law, and we've got to catch this. This is so critical. All sin, one wrote, has a Godward force. No matter what you say or hurt, who you hurt in your life, or whether you sin against yourself, at the end of the day, though that's all true, all sin is an attack on the nature of God. It's incredibly serious. So when you see the, the holiness of God and the beauty of God and the transcendence of God and see your sin, when we see our sin, and then we realize that that God who's holy is also love and see the mercy he extends back to us out of our rebellion through Jesus and we embrace Jesus, then and only then does the Ten Commandments take on this beautiful thing, as J.I. Packer said, of becoming life-giving laws where you walk with God 
in this beautiful way and you walk with others in this beautiful way because this actually is how we were supposed to walk with God. This is actually what we lost in Eden and what he's starting to give back to us. So I'm going to ask if you wouldn't mind, no matter where you are, if you could stand and we're going to pray two things right now. Here's the first thing. If you are a seeker or a skeptic and you have never embraced God, I'm going to pray this prayer and I want you to pray it along with me. And again, if you're even watching online, no matter where you are, you pray this. You pray, God, at this moment I realize how holy you are. And I've broken your heart and law so many times. And actually, I don't even know if I understood how serious it was. And so I'm admitting I am a sinner. And I need salvation, redemption. I need you to have mercy. I need you to come and want me anyway and have mercy on me. So I admit that I need Jesus. I need his life and his death and his resurrection. I need his work to cover the doorposts of my life. So now I admit I'm a sinner. Jesus, save me from my sin. I now see my separation from you. And I ask you to embrace me as your child. I no longer want just to be conscious of my sin. I actually want freedom and salvation and eternal life. I accept your gift of Jesus and help me now to walk a brand new life, not trying to get your attention or make sure I'm getting scraps off the table. No, no, because I've met you, I'm your child. Help me to walk a new freedom. Now for the rest of us, this is a really significant moment across our whole church. Because remember where I started this message, where God has given us multiple words and prophecies about his desire to release so much beauty and power and redemption from this community, internally and externally. But the critical key is our personal holiness. And so again, if you could just open your hands wherever you might be if you're a Christian, and we're gonna just pray this together. God, thank you that we're saved by grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone. Thanks for your mercy. But here's our request. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit across all of this church. And we now are asking for a profound move of the Holy Spirit in the area of personal holiness. Help us to understand not only your law, your Ten Commandments, but help us and give us the power by the Holy Spirit to want to obey them. We pray for literally a, a, a growing flood of personal holiness in our thoughts, in our inner lives when we're alone, with friends and family at businesses across our church and beyond. We're asking Holy Spirit for a profound fear of God in the right sense, a, a profound new sense of freedom in our church, and a real sense of love for God and love for others. So we are saying with our hands open, God, we want to obey the Ten Commandments. We want to obey you. We want to be faithful to you. Help us. Remember, we're dust, God. We're here today and God tomorrow. But we're asking, come Holy Spirit and do this profound work among us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And we all said together, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.